Hi, my name is Claire Vincent, and I am the host of House Call, an Affinity Strategies podcast. Our fifth episode is entitled, It's the Little Things That Matter. I had the privilege to spend some time with Kayla McLaughlin, a physician assistant with the gender-affirming surgery team at Kaiser Permanente, West Los Angeles. This is a jam-packed episode, and we spent time discussing how growing up in fringe rural Pennsylvania influenced her desire to become a healthcare provider, her techniques she uses to make patients, no matter what their background is, feel okay when engaging in the healthcare system, and the significant barriers that trans patients face when seeking healthcare. We had so much great information to talk about that Kayla will be back for episode six in March. Be sure to tune in next month to listen to the rest of our conversation. Before we jump in, here's a bit about Kayla. She is a PA in LA, California. She graduated from Chatham College for Women in 2009 with a BS in kinesiology and then obtained her MS in physician assistant studies from Chatham University. Her first job was in HIV clinical research at the LA LGBT Center, the world's largest LGBT nonprofit organization. After a year of research, Kayla pivoted to the Transgender Health Program, where she provided hormone therapy and medical transition care to transgender patients, along with primary care services. In 2018, she joined the gender-affirming surgery team at Kaiser Permanente West Los Angeles, which is a regional program servicing all Southern California. She has presented at the national and international level on the topic of transgender surgery and published a paper with her team on the topic. I really hope you enjoy listening to episode five of House Call. Welcome to the show, Kayla. Hi. 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 We are so thrilled to have you with us today. Thank you. I'm really thrilled to to be here too. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we have got some exciting information to talk about today. So let's go ahead and dive right in. Um, The first thing I'd love to hear you talk about today is how you became interested in medicine. Yeah, so I've I've been thinking about this, and it's kind of hard to to pinpoint one one kind of moment. I think it was more of a, a collection of moments, but also just my experience uh, growing up in rural Pennsylvania, um, mm-hmm. sort of in uh, a community that is, you know, technically considered fringe rural in terms of uh, access to school and medical care and those kinds of things, and. I just experienced in my life growing up knowing that or experiencing what felt like a hierarchy in terms of um, options and opportunities. Um, mm. Everyone that I grew up with, their parents were either, you know, some sort of skilled labor, um, which, you know, at the time I thought was super great. It is super great. It wasn't until I got to college and I was the first person in my family to go to college where I met people who, you know, their parents were college educated and maybe, you know, doctors and lawyers and those kinds of things. I kind of had to do everything I possibly could to get to college. And there were a lot of people who it sort of came very easily in a sense. Um, But what particularly got me interested in it was um, my younger sister had a teen pregnancy and she was, she was quite young. She was 15 and it was, you know, a big surprise to our family, obviously, but she decided to, you know, move forward and, and have her child, my nephew. And uh, I accompanied her a lot to, to a lot of her doctor's appointments um, throughout that entire process. And there were many, many 
times where people at various levels of, you know, within the medical sort of hierarchy who shamed her for her Mm -hmm. one way or another, sort of, you know, what we now know are microaggressions or a macroaggression. Um, And I just remember thinking like, this is the person who, you know, she's made such a brave choice for her age and, you know, just having that one person who maybe would have been a little bit more affirming could have made her experience very different. Yeah. And yeah. So then I sort of got this like craving for that kind of power (laughs) to be able to make people feel okay. Uh, So that was whenever I sort of focused on, uh, you know, getting into school. I, um, or when I was in college, sort of focusing more on sciences and things like that. And I think that I had previous to that hesitated doing anything that would have led to something that was like medical or science because I didn't think I was capable or Mm. it had never been modeled to anyone or in anyone around me. And I just remember seeing uh, one day whenever I was an undergrad, like all of the PA students leaving their classroom. And I guess it was like whenever they had first gotten their white coats and I just was like looking at them and I was like, I'm going to do that. I'm going to get, I'm going to get in. I'm going to do it. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. So that's what I've been doing uh, since about 2015. That's incredible. Good for you. And um, what an inspiring story that you have to tell with respect to, you know, just how you even got interested in medicine, much less, you know, going down the path of, of becoming a healthcare provider. What, was it about being a physician assistant that particularly attracted you, unlike maybe other uh, healthcare provider roles? That's a good question, too. I first, I was initially interested in physical therapy. Uh, that was sort of what oh. my first um, path to medicine was. And I can't, I can't remember exactly why, but I just remember... Um, I got to observe a surgery and because uh, whenever you're doing physical therapy, I was working in a physical therapy uh, center during college as an aide. And that's where I learned a lot, a lot of patients and how to, you know, very slowly get someone on and off an exercise machine who may have, you know, a mobility issue or that mm, recovering sure. and those kinds of things. Uh, but I found myself really interested in what happened before they came to PT, like how, what was, what went on in their surgery or what was their injury. And um, so I had the opportunity to shadow a PA and I had actually originally was supposed to shadow the MD. And then whenever I met the PA who I was sort of like handed off to, to shadow her, um, I had never heard of what a PA was and it was, she was fascinating. I mean, her and the physician just ran um, you know, the surgery center together and they were not, you know, she didn't seem like a, like a submissive to the doctor. She was, you know, her colleague and they made decisions together. And so that was whenever I sort of turned my attention to that. I also really like the flexibility. Um, I'm a Gemini and also very fickle (laughs) at times. So it's nice to be able to, I also wanted security, I guess, is what that is because growing up where I was, I I knew that I was going to get a job that, you know, I was going to get a paycheck every two weeks and and that kind of thing, because I didn't want to be in a situation where I didn't have that. So 
Um, yeah, so being being a PA, I really like that flexibility and that I can go from primary care to surgery and then nephrology if I wanted to. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's basically why. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you probably fairly quickly realized that you had a lot of opportunity, right, ahead of you as a um, PA. And I, I mean, I remember when we were talking about your graduate school experience to kind of prepare for for our conversation today and the incredibly diverse experiences that you had during your rotations. I, I would just love if you could maybe talk a little bit about the variety um, of patient populations that you were exposed to um, during your your training. I'd love to. Yes, that was so integral to my uh, training as as you know, both a medical provider, but also just as a person learning about the world that I live in. Um, so I went to Chatham University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and in Pittsburgh there happens to be like sort of you know in a lot of cities a lot of nursing schools, med schools, and that kind of stuff. So not uh, not enough doctors and PAs for everyone to shadow within the same city. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we were encouraged to kind of go go out into the world and uh, if we could find rotations in different um, you know states to sort of focus on those, and we were, we were able to do that. So I set up my rotation year that I went to a new city in the United States every day or every, every day, um, every rotation. And we would spend about nine to 12 weeks at each of these rotations. And every time everywhere I went, I made it a point to stay with someone who lived in this area that was like renting a room or something like that. So I could really, um, you know, sort of integrate myself. Uh, so first I went to Yuma, Arizona and Yuma is right on the border of America and uh, Mexico. It's on the Mexican-U.S. border. And so this was a pediatrics pa- practice that was well-known in the community as, um, you know, a safe place for people to take their children if perhaps they were undocumented uh, children mm-hmm. or if the parents were undocumented or if, you know, maybe they had some red flags that, um, you know, in a modern sort of Western healthcare system would make someone question like their parenting. So for example, you know, if someone's three years old and they haven't had any vaccines at all because they haven't been to any doctor's appointments, um, you know, some parents would be maybe unwilling to admit that to a place where they didn't know if that they would be, you know, quote unquote punished for that or something. Um, and it was really, really eye opening to see that, you know, disease does not discriminate um, and mm. people, young people that are born with, um, you know, different things that people can be born with, if they are not in a position to get any kind of treatment, then they don't get treated. So, yeah, you know, like I saw a kid with uh, who was born with clubbed feet that had no interventions, you know, and, and things like that. So, and it really helps me sort of adapt your treatment because, you know, it's one thing to be able to figure out the diagnosis and the treatment if you don't accommodate the patient in, in a way that will allow them to take their medication or to, you know, come to follow-up appointments and things like that. Yeah, so I was very excited to go tell my preceptor, like, how 
excellent I had done. <laughs> and she, uh, you know, brought up that she knows this family and she knows that they don't actually have a working refrigerator. So to give them a liquid antibiotic uh, isn't going to work because they're not able to keep it cold. Mm. And that's such a simple, basic thing that you don't think about. And it presents a really a real challenge. I t- when I, you know, talk to different um, you know, PAs or doctors to different um, lectures or presentations. One thing I say a lot is, you know, just like think about the basics. Don't let very basic things, you know, sort of become more of a problem than they should be. You know, it's so interesting to hear you talk about those basics. And I think certainly in the United States, perhaps, um, you know, professions have a tendency to overcomplicate things and maybe go to the most, um, complex of the of the problem and focus on that versus what you're talking about, which is the real fundamentals, right? Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, if you're if you know that your patient is, you know, homeless, for example, or low income, you wouldn't uh, you know, for example, so wherever I where I work, we're a regional program. We have patients that live very far away from us. I know that it costs a lot of money for people to come in for a follow-up appointment. And if there's a time when that can be over video or telephone and that saves a person of like day of lost wages because they're not at work, the cost yeah. of gas or bus fare to get there to see me, then those are the very small basic accommodations that I can make for the patient that really change their course of care um, and their everyday life because then they're, they're keeping money in their pocket. Um, so, yeah, that was really an eye-opening experience. Uh, and then I also went to um, Utah, and I worked with uh, a Mormon population in psychiatry. And basically, you know, how do we relate or sort of assimilate a sort of hyper-religious, or not hyper-religious, but people who their religion is very important to them and it's going to affect their care and their decisions about their Mm -hmm. care. Mm -hmm. How do we, uh, you know, use that in a way to, because like I said, like diseases don't discriminate. It doesn't matter if you're very religious, people can still have psychiatric illness. And, you know, in the Mormon faith, um, as I understand it, you know, they believe in actually communicating with God and, depending on where you are, if you walk into an emergency room and say, like, I'm talking to God and I'm hearing God, that may trigger a different response from one person to the next. Um, Mm -hmm. But sometimes maybe that person is having a delusion that you have to separate from their actual religious experience. Most importantly, all while respecting them as a person and not being, you know, put out by their put personhood. I think that that's what kind of separates quote unquote, cultural sensitivity from not being culturally sensitive. Um, so that was very, very interesting also. Yeah. I mean, it's just so curious how, you know, your experiences with your younger sister and and watching her in the way she was being treated by the medical profession, and you just carried that with you um, clearly until today, um, and all of these experiences that you've had um, along the way are just not only incredibly uh, interesting, but I can see how it has, you know, informed uh, the choices that you've made as a, as a professional. And it's just, it's incredible. I just applaud you so much for, for the work that you're doing and the way in which you're doing it. Thank you. Yeah, of course, of course. 
So before we dive into your current area of practice, I would love to talk about the experience you've had and the research you've done in HIV. Could you share a bit about the work you've done? Yeah. uh, My very first job out of PA school was at the Los Angeles LGBT Center, and I was a clinical research um, clinician, I guess you would say. Mm -hmm. And we investigated uh, PrEP. So PrEP is pre-exposure prophylaxis. So basically, and this is fairly widely known in the medical community, but there are a lot of people who still don't have access to it or providers that don't know about it. But it's essentially like a birth control for HIV. Um, You know, they have figured out that whenever nurses or medical professionals get needle sticks or needle pokes from patients that have HIV, how to prevent infection. So applying that same Mm. principle to sort of preloading your uh, blood with antiretrovirals for in case you have an exposure to HIV, it prevents the HIV from being able to enter your cells and infect you. And it's fairly effective when taken daily. So what our uh, investigation was basically looking at was can we rely on patients to take this medication daily? And if we give patients a sort of a, a, you know, a pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV, does that open the door to them not using condoms or not practicing safe sex techniques that clinicians and a lot of people have worked really hard to communicate to patients over the years the importance of safe, safe sex and how to educate themselves and how to talk to partners and that kind of stuff. Sure. Um, So also a lot of people were very afraid in the beginning that whenever, you know, if PrEP becomes widely used, that our rates of STIs would go very, very high. Um, And as of that study, we had found that they didn't increase, um, not only among the entire population, but if you were able to compare that person to themselves in the past, they did not become more sexually risky uh, once they were taking PrEP. And then we also measured that against, um, you know, their their um, self-reported dosing, so if they were taking it daily versus their actual blood levels of of the drug, of the study drug, um, to see if they were adherent. And that actually has led to, um, I just think that HIV has been so important um, and the research in HIV and HIV activism as a way, it was sort of a first political gateway to attention to the LGBT community and how they do suffer incongruently to their white counterparts in medicine. Mm-hmm. I think it was something like 30,000, I forget what the number was, but the number of people who died, number of gay men, I should say, who died in the United States from HIV before it was ever even mentioned by the president at that time is like astronomical. And, you know, it's still a very politicized disease. And, you know, now we live in a time where disease seems to be politicized a lot. But um, yes, the, the, the science of HIV is so fascinating because of all of the advancements that we've made, you know, just from the time that this disease has existed to today is astronomical. Um, people who have HIV, who are diagnosed with HIV in their lifetime today, don't have any effect on their life expectancy. Um, yeah. And that's, I mean, it like moves me to tears to think about that because there are many people and I work with many people. I know many people who, you know, they lived through their friends and their family mm-hmm. dying in mass. Um, so the, the advancements in medicine 
are really moving to me and the people that dedicate so much of their life and their time and how many HIV patients are willing to participate in studies and, um, you know, working on experimental drugs. And, you know, we, we had no problem with enrollment for our PrEP study. And I think that shows that there is like a level of community here that they, they sort of are interested in the best interest of the group and finding you know, being their own advocates within medicine and science. Wow. That that's remarkable. And and I I wonder, I mean, your comment about the um participation rate is is uh, is an interesting one to me. I would have thought that maybe you would have had some challenges just because you know, the the gay community, you know, back then was was likely not treated very well by um, the medical care community, and you mentioned, you know, perhaps it's 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 related to the fact that they are so interested in being maybe advocates for themselves. What maybe what else maybe contributed to the the high participation rate? I think there's a great documentary a friend of mine uh, produced recently that's called Right to Try, and the subject of the film he pursues um, uh, right to try treatment for HIV. So since HIV is no longer considered uh, a fatal illness, mm-hmm. you're no longer allowed to pursue experimental treatments um, in the same mm-hmm. way that you'd be able to for, for cancers, et cetera. Um, but there are still studies that are doing those. Um, but the, the basically the focus of this patient is that he stops taking his antiretrovirals and he's starting to take this um, other medication sort of based on the principle of um, there was one man ever cured of HIV and it was through a bone marrow transplant from someone who had a genetic variation that prevents HIV from entering their cells. And those people come from descendants of people who survived the Black Plague. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's really fascinating. So Eastern Europeans, there's a group of Eastern Europeans that that has that descends from. So this person received an HIV, a bone marrow transplant from someone who had that variation and was cured from HIV. Um, that was in like the early 90s. Mm. So they're starting to try to replicate that to sort of actually, you know, cure people from HIV. And he said, you know, this process for him of stopping his medication, doing an experimental drug, um, you know, he's a man in his 60s. It's, it was, you know, a very grueling process. And he says, I owe it to my friends. Like, I lived, you know, sort mm-hmm. of a survivor's guilt. Um, you know, I I come from a, you know, cis hetero experience. But I know that a lot of people who, you know, are in the LGBT community who are thriving probably feel somewhat of, of a guilt, of a survivor's guilt in that they know many of their peers and counterparts aren't and they can't, mm-hmm. you know, one reason or another. So I think that that's why there is a responsibility, or not a, a sense of responsibility to, you know, be vocal and be active and participate and be a part of a community. Yeah, that's um, remarkable, remarkable. Thank you for for sharing that, Kayla. Affinity Strategies is a full-service nonprofit healthcare associate, management, and stakeholder engagement firm. 
they use digital-first solutions to promote transparent, efficient business practices. They partner with each client organization to maximize both staff and client expertise, experience, and relationships to meet goals. To learn more about Affinity Strategy Services, the team, and the mission-driven work they have done and continue to do, visit their website at www.affinity-strategies.com. All right, Kayla, we're going to move into your current area of practice. And can you tell us how you became interested in the healthcare for trans patients? Yes, that was sort of serendipitous in that in my practice at the LGBT center, I was doing mostly clinical research, so I wasn't seeing patients, um, you know, for for issues or anything like that. Uh, And then I just after the study was completed, my our, our chief medical officer was like, well, what do you want to do? Like, what other kind of, and I just sort of chose trans patients, the trans health program. I thought that that was really interesting. I hadn't learned about it in school at all. Um, I didn't know anyone that I knew of who had um, gender dysphoria. And it was something that I had a really cool opportunity um, being at the LGBT center with the people who have been working there for, you know, some like decades, teaching me everything that they knew about transgender medicine. Um, Mm. So I just was so thrilled every single day. It was such an amazing experience um, to do hormone starts and basically also like primary care services. Uh Uh, But it kind of goes back to that moment with my sister of, you know, being the first person medically that someone talks to about their gender dysphoria um, or what they think might be gender dysphoria and and things like that. I just felt like I was made for that role. Um, (sighs) And it was less about me and just like, okay, I I know how to do this. So like, it's what I have to do. And I sort of hesitated a little bit because I thought that um, because I wasn't trans or because I'm not, you know, a lot of my colleagues at the LGBT center, like they're of the LGBT community and I am in a way too, but, um, and then I kind of thought, you know, that's, that's a little silly. I think that I can still be of use, even though I don't know specifically what they're, what they're talking about, Mm -hmm. you know, it's all humanity and it all kind of applies. Um, so that was just such a great experience. And I learned really so much about, about, you know, transgender medicine specifically, but then also challenging my own ideas of sort of how, gender works in our society. And also the fact that I had done a whole year of um, underserved population medicine in school and it had never once occurred to me that LGBT people are part of that community. Um, And also really kind of seeing the challenges that they face, not only to access, you know, basic medical care, but just in their lives in general. It has got to be such an interesting and very satisfying uh, work for you to do. Yeah, and also a little challenging in some people would say that it's 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 cookbook medicine in the sense that the medication you prescribe like in terms of hormones mm. is generally, you know, like there's only a couple of drugs and there's only like so many variations of doses, but it's the the you know, the the nuts and bolts of the appointment are, you know, getting to know this person and what they're actually going for. I mean, the hormones that we have available and and what people take, like that's, that's our answer to, you know, an issue that is much larger than just 
hormones. Um, it's also sure. society and culture. And, you know, if someone has had past sexual trauma, reproductive rights, um, that's why the conversation of just whether or not someone is trans, which is what a lot of, you know, sort of anti-trans groups want to bring up. I'm just like, that is so boring. That is not even part of the conversation. <laughs> like, we're so far beyond that, beyond that, like, intellectually. We're talking about, like, fertility issues and, you know, all those kinds of things. And it's just, um, you know, it can just be so simple. But it was not like every person that I saw, too, like, came in and was like, hey, I'm trans. And I want to, you know, go to this binary of the gender. Like a lot of people, like we're we're piecing this out. We're we're going back to experiences of like, you know, childhood and and you know how their mind was shaped, and you know also sort of trying to like decloak some of the shame that they may have, mm-hmm. um, and just admitting it to themselves. And there are oh, some people man. who never transition. You know, mm-hmm. I've met a lot of people who just kind of talking about it and getting it out there to somebody is, you know, maybe all that they can do and having hormones and actually like pursuing transition isn't a reality for them. Sure. Uh, I had one patient who he was a gang member in Los Angeles and, Mm. you know, he was like, there's no, there's no possible way I could, I could do this. But if I can come and see you and talk about it, then that sort of um, releases the pressure a little bit. Yeah. And I think it's, it's, it's so helpful for you to be talking about sort of the spectrum of, of patients that you see. Um, because to your point, it, it seems like much of, of kind of the general, uh, population doesn't really understand that aspect of, of, of the medicine that you practice. Yeah. I would say that the general population in general, we don't, we're not, taught to think about, you know, gender or sexuality outside of what is considered, you know, quote unquote, normal or heteronormative. So then even Mm -hmm. taking it a step further and saying like, well, you know, there's not just trans people and not all trans people are someone who was assigned male at birth that wants to be female. Like there's, there's variation. And also that this has existed as long as people have existed in all Mm -hmm. cultures, in all societies, um, you know, in India forever, they have acknowledged a third gender. And it's usually once sort of either like, you know, European colonialism happens and that kind of stuff that we then, you know, make indigenous people cut their braids or, you know, make the women wear dresses and those kinds of things. But the people who think that, uh, you know, transgender and non-binary is new or new it's really the idea of like man and woman in a Mm -hmm. sense in terms Mm -hmm. of societal context that is new. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, that just makes me think, um, I feel like before we go any further in our discussion, I'm wondering if you might be able to review, you know, some commonly used terms in transgender medicine. Would that be okay with you? Yeah. Great. Okay. So of course I have a, a, a short list Um, And certainly, um, you know, kind of when we get through this initial list, if you have additional terms that you think would be really helpful for our listeners, you know, you you can have at it. Um, So first off, gender dysphoria. Yes. So gender dysphoria, this is a medical term with something that we are able to, um, you know, bill and code under, but is the lived experience of a person who does not identify with or their experience, their lived experience is not congruent with the gender or biological sex that they're assigned to whenever they're born. 
So, for example, someone who is assigned male at birth, and we say assigned male at birth because saying biological sex or natal sex kind of means that or insinuates that that is your actual sex. Mm. Um, So sort of just changing the terminology to assigned male at birth. And that can also, you know, apply to people who are intersex and those kinds of things. There, There are sometimes people who they're told they're male or female at birth and that is not correct. Um, Mm. So basically the dysphoria and why that's significant is that it is an intense feeling of dread, incongruence, depression um, that comes on either acutely. So it can be in a moment where someone is misgendered or someone is feeling threatened um, or, you know, just reminded that, their body does not align with their experience um, or it's, you know, sort of more of a long-term chronic issue in terms of not having a lived experience of what you're living on the inside. And the reason Mm -hmm. that that's significant is because people who experience gender dysphoria have a um, suicide attempt rate of nearly 40%. And that could (sighs) even be higher at this point. And that's not like suicidal ideation or thoughts. These are actual attempts at suicide. Um, So that's really, you know, the sort of driving force between of all treatment for gender dysphoria is that uh, we know that people who experience gender dysphoria to a measurable level at some point may try to take their life. Mm -hmm. And it's our job to, you know, keep people alive. (laughs) So that's why we pursue hormones and surgeries and those kinds of things. We're specifically treating gender dysphoria. Yeah. Wow. 40%. I had no idea it was that high. It it Mm -hmm. seems like that should amount to a public health crisis. Yeah. I mean, and a lot of that is youth. The trans youth are disproportionately affected by homelessness, depression, Uh, uh, lack of education, lack of access to education, and yeah, it's really, really upsetting that sometimes people can sort of people can sort of dismiss dismiss it as a fad or something like that. And it's you know, and I talk to parents a lot too. Um, mm-hmm. And I try to not be, you know, very. By the time people get to me, they're they're having surgery, so they've gone through many, many hoops and and you know stops and checks and balances to get to that point. So most of the time, the parents are pretty much at least they've been warmed up to this idea for some time by the time the patient gets to surgery, but there are still people who accompany their child to surgery that are not totally on board. Um, You know, we have to do a a sort of assessment of, is this person going to actually pose a problem? Like, are they, is our patient in danger of violence? Does this parent provide this person's housing? And then, you know, are they going to take their housing away once they have surgery? Like those kinds of things. So I always try to approach people in that situation. Um, You know, I say to parents who are there, even if they don't totally don't get it, I say, like, no one's blaming you for not understanding. This is a really big concept. Um, You know, there are a lot of times I come into this room to visit our patients post-op and they're here alone. You know, so the fact that you even showed up for your kid Mm -hmm. is something. And I think that the more I try to just, like, reaffirm them and that they're also having an experience, but also keeping in mind, like, this is about their child and not them, um, then people can really come around, you know? Yeah, 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 definitely. Okay. So how about 
the terms transgender or trans? So this can get kind of complicated, and it's not complicated, but I'm going to say <laughs> So there used to be, like, when I would talk about this and present it at different um, presentations or whatever, it used to be that the word transgender was like this big umbrella, and then under that umbrella were all of these other words, like transmasculine, transfeminine, non-binary, and all that kind of stuff. But now mm-hmm. we know that, you know, transgender is is really like a type of a gender non-conforming person. So someone who is transgender, if we're just breaking that word down into like its parts, trans meaning opposite, that usually implies someone who is, you know, assigned one sex at birth and would like to transition to the other end of the binary. So someone who is assigned female at birth, but their goal is to, um, you know, take testosterone, have a deep voice, stand to urinate, um, and exist and be a man and have a male name. And so that's whenever we say transmasculine, transfeminine, or transfemale, transmale. The word, the gender that's in the word after trans is always the goal gender. So mm-hmm. you can assume that someone who's transfeminine would maybe probably use she, her pronouns. Someone okay. who's transmale or transmasculine. And sometimes people will say transfeminine or transmasculine to mean that they're like sort of left or right of center, that they're a little bit more on the masculine side than the feminine side, but not necessarily wanting to go from like, you know, your most femme to your most, most masculine. Um, Okay. And then non-binary would be basically someone who I does not identify as either gender. It could be that they mm-hmm. don't identify as male or female ever, or that sometimes they go back and forth between those in their expression in terms of how they dress or how they present themselves. Um, some people also may say agender, that they're genderless. Um, mm-hmm. An important thing to remember, though, that in the non-binary category um, or in the non-binary like sort of definition, we also have people who may be, uh, uh, there's also something called two-spirit, T-W-O. So this is more of an indigenous word of people who are physically inhabited by two two spirits. Um, Someone who is non-binary does not have to be androgynous. And that is a big assumption that, you know, if you're non-binary, that means you haven't picked a side. So so then don't pick a side. So then don't dress (laughs) feminine and say you're non-binary. And in terms of, you know, surgery and hormones and things like that, it just presents, you just have to do a little bit more, um, you know, investigation into what their goals are in terms of how do they want to use their body parts, what body parts do they identify with, what ones do they not identify with, um, which which is really kind of the most interesting part, I would have to say, is kind of piecing through that, that, that territory. I bet it is. I bet it is challenging um, for maybe the healthcare provider as well as as maybe the individual because they're trying to figure things out as well, right? Yes. Yeah. How about cisgender? Cisgender is someone, uh, so cis and trans, those are like organic chemistry words. So trans meaning opposite and cis meaning same side. So cisgender means someone who identifies with the gender that they're born with. So like Oprah is cisgender. I am cisgender. Yeah. And some people will say, like, why do we need a term for cisgender or, you know, for because the only other way to say that is like, quote unquote, regular gender or, you know, so 
and this is also people get really bogged down with like terminology. And I think that you can really sort of like hyper, you can make this very academic if you want to, but also you can mm-hmm. make it very simple that in the way that we use words, if you're saying that one thing is ab is, is normal, then the other thing is abnormal. So a lot of changes in terms of nomenclature with, um, you know, gender identity and stuff just comes from not saying, you know, that they have a disorder of their gender or that they are a deviation from normal, that cisgender people are are normal. It's just a type of experienced gender. Yeah, because words matter. And just like you're talking about, if you're already using terminology that is at least seemingly pejorative, that's already going to be off-putting and damaging to individuals who don't identify, right? Right. Like how over 35, your pregnancy is considered elderly. <laughs> yes. It's like, yes. you can just use different wording, you know? <laughs> exactly. Age. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Uh, words matter when we're talking about people and with people. Um, the last one I have on my list is, and, and I have found this to be, I think, confusing for people, not really understanding how sexual orientation does or does not have a relationship when talking about um, transgenderism, if that's a word. Yes. So sexual orientation and gender are, are two different things. And basically, you can use your gender to derive the word that you would use to explain your sexual orientation, um, meaning if you identify as someone who is homosexual, then that would mean same sex. And if you identify as a male, then that would mean that you, um, you know, are into men. But sexual orientation essentially is who are you attracted to? Who do you enter relationships with, either physical or not physical? Um, and why that matters medically is just because of screening for different STIs or pregnancy risk and those kinds of things. Um it's something that can change, you know, if someone's sexual mm-hmm. orientation, uh, you know, there are people who come out later in life or people who, after meeting a certain person, um, you know, may be interested in, in dating them and that kind of thing. Um, but basically the point is that if someone is trans, it doesn't necessarily mean that also their sexual orientation is related to their transness. Um, so a lot of trans females you know, would identify as straight, meaning that they're into men. And mm-hmm. trans men would identify as gay if they were into, into men. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, when whenever I talk to patients about this, I, I don't really, I don't even really ask like sexual orientation or sexual preference. I just say, like, who do you have sex with? What mm. parts of your body do you use for sex? And what like what goes where essentially. And another thing is that I practice saying this stuff a lot. Whenever I first worked at the LGBT center, um, you know, I had to ask patients questions about sex that I wasn't necessarily like super comfortable or even like familiar with. And I would literally practice in front of the mirror sort of asking these questions because you need to, if you stumble over your words or make it seem like you're a little bit like embarrassed or, Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. then they're not going to trust you and they don't want to talk about it. Um, so I just like kind of let it roll off the tongue. So I, I kind of recommend that. Like if you have difficulty in using pronouns or these words 
in practice with patients than just practice with yourself or with a colleague. Gosh, that's great advice. That is great advice because you're right. I mean, if you have difficulty asking questions that will immediately um, cause that other person to kind of put up the walls and like you said, not trust or at, at a minimum, not being willing to um, engage and be forthcoming with the information that's really needed for you to gather. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get it. All right. Uh, we have one last question for today's episode. And you you alluded a little bit to this um, earlier, Kayla, but I'm wondering if you might be able to kind of narrow down to three areas in which either trans and or non-binary patients face the greatest challenges within the healthcare system? Yes, there are many challenges. They have, there has been progress in recent years. Uh, There's also been a lot of backpedaling in recent years in terms of access to care and trans medical rights in general. But I would say that, you know, our biggest issue is simply access to care. Um, You know, it wasn't until 2014 with the Affordable Care Act that made it illegal to discriminate against patients for pre-existing conditions. You know, some of those pre-existing conditions for trans people might be gender dysphoria, you know, or endocrine disorder. Or providers used to try to, you know, find other diagnosis codes to use to not make it very obvious in this patient's chart that they were trans while still kind of giving them care. Uh, so people who had gender dysphoria were not able to purchase or to be insured, or if they were insured, it didn't cover any gender-affirming services. Mm-hmm. So with that change, we now have more people in our healthcare system. I'm fortunate that I'm not only in California, but I work for Kaiser Permanente, and we're an HMO plan, so I don't have to ask a single person's permission to prescribe medication or you know surgery and all those all that stuff. But there are many um, hoops that people have to go through just to get to a provider. Uh, to talk about being trans, and then once they're there, whether or not that person is even knowledgeable. Um, Mm. There's a lot of, you know, we know that the doctor's office, that's that's a privileged space. That's where you're supposed to be able to, um, you know, have very open and candid conversations. And if you're met with, you know, sometimes violence from people who you're supposed to trust, that makes people really hesitant to go back to healthcare for any reason. So that's why as a surgery department, we're very fortunate in that we don't just see our patients for their surgery. We do like a total wellness, making sure in all areas of their life, all of their healthcare needs are met because I know that, you know, if they go elsewhere, they may not receive that same care. So, you know, I'm talking to people about um, immunizations or, you know, screening colonoscopies and all that kind of stuff, doing more primary care-based stuff in a surgery setting, but only because we know that our patients, you know, are quite vulnerable in that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really, really helpful information to share. And I, I know that you and Kaiser Permanente are um, doing incredible things to help alleviate and, and take down some of those barriers that, um, that you're talking about. It's really fantastic. Yeah, I feel really proud. I mean, in our medical center, every single person that works there from physician, you know, to anybody, they they do several hours of transgender sensitivity training uh, every year. 
We are the Transgender Center for Excellence for Southern California at our West Los Angeles Center. And, um, you know, it doesn't, for me, it doesn't feel performative. You know, it feels very real. Everyone on our team really understands and values the ethos of what we're trying to do and how the most important thing is that throughout this process, like, we still give people bad news. People still have bad outcomes and, you know, poor health and those kinds of, like, we can't avoid that. But the most important thing is that through this whole process, this person's personhood is acknowledged, that their gender is affirmed, and that they were, you know, treated with basic respect. Um, and that's why I tell people, like kind of saying earlier about getting back to basics, you know, we have interactions sometimes with, um, you know, like people will tell me about other doctors that they've seen and things like that who maybe seemed very off-put by having to use different pronouns. And I always say, like, really? Like, you, you're a neurosurgeon. <laughs> like, yeah. like, this is what's going to confuse you or bog you down? Like, what if I told you that all you had to do was, like, use a two- or three-letter letter word or just use the patient's name that they want to use? And you could you would buy so much trust just in yeah. that small gesture um, instead of just taking, you know, and, you know, instead of taking the easy way and just pretending to be confused. Right. Another area where patients face a lot of um, challenges, like I said, like once it's a provider having to sort of explain to them, you know, who they are, what trans medicine is, um, you know, and that just doesn't happen in any other ailment or any other issue that someone might have where you're explaining to your doctor like, well, yeah, it's called asthma and this is what we do for it, you know? And um, so because of that, there are many groups within the United States that identify, um, you know, trans or LGBT sensitive care providers. And in some state, we have dozens of anti-trans legislature um, mm-hmm. that is being voted on currently, the more exposure and, um, you know, teaching that we're doing in terms of medical care, there is just as much backlash and people trying to prevent these things from happening. So being able to find that provider and now with, you know, telehealth and things like that, it's it's not as, as hard as it used to be. Um, you know, in some states, I feel I used to kind of have this stance of like, you know, if you live in Alabama maybe leave, <laughs> mm-hmm. go, to, go to a city. But then it's like we're sort of perpetuating these, um, you know, congested areas of anti-trans, you know, culture and society. And, you know, to see a trans person or an LGBT person living in their community that they identify with in their true self and just being joyful and thriving, like that's the best thing you could possibly hope for. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, Kayla, you have been such an interesting guest. You, I thank you so much today for sharing all of your great wisdom. And I am really looking forward to our part two of our conversation coming up next month. Yes, thank you. Today's episode was written, researched, and hosted by me, Claire Vincent, with technical production provided by Derek Anderson and music from Caleb Justinger. Be sure to follow our series to stay up to date on new episodes. Share it with your friends, and if you enjoy what you're hearing, kindly give us a like. This helps us get the word out about our series.
You can expect a new episode to drop sometime during the third week of each month. Thank you so much for listening to House Call, an Affinity Strategies podcast. We appreciate you so, so much. I look forward to catching up with you again in just a few weeks. Thanks again for listening. This is Claire Vincent.